My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. This is a story that is complicated and simple all at once. It's the story of British Columbia's largest Indigenous-led foster agency, and it's the story of years of complaints, accusations of abuse, investigations, allegations, and the kind of bureaucracy that makes institutions like this so resistant to badly needed transparency and change. That part is complicated. This stuff is never easy, and I get it. But this is also the story of a 17-year-old boy who was alive when he was placed with the agency. And now he's dead. And that part is real simple. So the story you'll hear today is about what happens when the simple thing throws a big, bright spotlight on the complicated stuff. And it's about what, hopefully, happens next. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Nancy McDonald is a national reporter for The Globe and Mail. She's based in Vancouver, British Columbia. Hey, Nancy. Hi, Jordan. Why don't we just begin with this? First of all, uh, what is Yothmeath? Yothmeath is a First Nations Child Welfare Authority in BC. It's the biggest of 24 agencies in the province, and its geographical area covers a massive region in the Fraser Valley. So it's it's a really big agency. It's got big caseloads, and it covers a pretty huge area. And just to set the stage, maybe, who are the boys uh, that we'll be talking about today? The two boys, obviously one m- more than the other, but but I think they provide a, a pretty good example uh, in terms of what can happen at agencies like this. So in Jamie's case, what, what led to him ending up in that group home in Abbotsford was he'd grown up in a very abusive home. We don't detail it in the story, but it's, it's, a, it's a tragic story in its own right. And his older sister, who he's really close with, managed to get out. And it was her pressure. She, she pushed him like, you've got it. You've got to get out of this. And so she and he together went and asked for him basically to be put in care. And they thought this was going to make a big difference in Jamie's life that, you know, finally he would, he would get help. He would have someone looking after him. He would uh, learn how to take care of himself. He would be taught, you know, just how to have hobbies, how to have a normal life. In Trayvon's case, he ended up there after um, bumping through a number of placements. He had a number of different social workers. It's it's not totally clear how he ended up there, but he was bounced around a fair bit. This wasn't the first group home he'd lived in. So for those of us who don't know anything about how this all works, what does this process look like, I guess, in an ideal world? How is it supposed to work? Okay. 
So in an ideal world, um, these two these two boys are First Nations. So in an ideal world, they would be provided with care that uh, respects that heritage. So uh, they would have access to elders, to spiritual care. There's a friendship center in Vancouver that routinely does sweats. That's not a West Coast First Nations tradition, but both these boys have prairie roots. They're Korean Anishinaabe, and so ideally they would be brought to do things like that. This group home was supposed to provide them therapeutic care. Both these boys came into care with with certain traumas, and so ideally you'd have care workers who uh, were well-informed, well-educated, and could help these guys get past some some of the traumas they've encountered or be able to assist them in that. You know, ideally, they wouldn't just be fed and housed. They would be given access to sports, uh, maybe uh, introduced to new hobbies. You know, given their teenagers, be prepared to exit care by, you know, having someone help them learn to create a budget, learn to shop, learn to make food for themselves. And ideally, they would have people in their lives who, who really cared for them and were invested in them. How realistic is that, given what you know and what you've learned about this provider, I guess, in in particular. You mentioned that covers a wide geographical area and has um, a ton of kids under its care. Yeah. We seem to be really relying heavily on group home care in in BC and in other provinces. And um, this is very expensive care. And in some cases, it's effective, but in a lot of other cases, it really isn't. You've just got people who are doing the bare minimum and providing housing and very little else. Um, someone was saying to me, it's, it's sort of, it's the most expensive form of care with the least good outcomes. You know, if, if we don't do much to support foster parents, you know, financially or otherwise, I mean, we give them a min- minimal amount to help offset the cost of food and, and, and housing, but, um, Often these are really good situations and they mimic uh, family environments and, and there are good outcomes. Uh, the outcomes for kids who spend a big portion of their lives in group homes, unfortunately, isn't very good. What do we know about the group home where Jamie and Trayvon ended up? Um, I realize, you know, I'm not sure any of this has been proven in court, but what are the allegations at least that have been made about that home and, and what happened there? Well, the best insight we have into what was going on there comes through Jamie, this this boy who was living with Trayvon. And, you know, normally we don't have any insight at all into what goes on in, into these group homes because agencies are very protective of youth's privacy, but also I think sometimes they use that as a cudgel. Mm-hmm. And so we don't know what care looks like. We don't know what's going on in these kids' lives. But in this case, we had a boy who was so upset by what happened to Trayvon that that he was willing to kind of talk about what was going on. And he painted a really sad picture of their lives. Jamie alleged that um, they were left in their rooms for hours and hours a day. If the people caring for them had to leave to, to grocery shop or run errands, they locked them outside of the house. And so for hours at a time, sometimes they sat in the driveway. It was cold. It was winter. Neither of them had really good outdoor gear. Jamie alleged that one of the people caring for them was could be really harsh, and there were fights. And he, Jamie, is a is a lovely boy. He's but he's he's had a terrible life, and so he tends to shut down when he gets yelled at. He he comes from a very abusive home, and so 
in his words, he'll turtle up. And so when he would get yelled at by this guy, he would just kind of turtle up and ignore him. But he said with Trayvon, Trayvon would argue back or would fight back. And so sometimes those fights would escalate. What it sounded like was just a very lonely existence. And um, this was in the early days of the pandemic. You know, we were all isolated in our homes. And so, you know, you've got kids who aren't at school, they aren't seeing friends, and uh, they're spending all of their waking time alone in their bedrooms. Uh, so Jamie, Jamie couldn't handle it and, and left. They thought it was that bad. What happened to Trayvon? Yeah, so Jamie... Um, chose actually return to an abusive parent. Um, he just, he couldn't take living there anymore. And so he left. Trayvon stayed. He was there alone for a few months after Jamie left. And he died by suicide in September of 2020. Um, and his body wasn't found for four days. What did the group home maybe specifically, if anything, but Yathmeth, um in general, Say about these allegations, I mean, um, suicide, of course, but but the allegations from Jamie leading up to it. Well, neither Reese Family Services, the, the group home provider, or Yasmeeth have said anything. We've had uh, some back and forth with the Ministry of Child and Family Services in BC, but we've heard nothing from Yasmeeth and nothing from Reese. And it's one thing for them to say nothing to me, a reporter. But Trayvon's mom has heard nothing. She's phoned and phoned. She's hired a lawyer to try to get answers about, you know, what happened to her son? Um, was there anyone in the home with him? Why wasn't his body found for four days? Uh, what were his last days like? And they have yet to return a single phone call of hers. What is the ministry doing about this then? You mentioned you talked to them. Yeah, they say they have a plan to change the way Group homes are run in BC, but they haven't provided many details. But they, they do say that they are looking into the way group homes are run in BC. They're aware. There have been numerous reports, including one recently by the Auditor General here in BC. The way BC is running group homes is, is not safe. Um, there's not enough oversight of providers, and it's leading to bad outcomes. And they acknowledge that they are aware of this. This has been brought to their attention. Trayvon's terrible, tragic story. It's not the first time they've heard of these allegations. And they do say that they do plan to change things, but it's not exactly clear when or what those changes are going to look like. Can you dig into that uh, a little bit more? I mean, one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you, uh, aside from obviously a, a heartbreaking tragedy for Trayvon, is that you managed to, to paint a picture of a group home system. Um, that's under a lot of stress, that is failing kids. Like when you started digging into this, what did you find about how isolated an incident uh, this is and what kinds of complaints have been made? Well, um, the BC government doesn't uh, release a lot of data or information about outcomes in, in group homes. So we don't actually know from the data they collect what outcomes are like, but we do know from studies that have been done of... Um, homeless youth, that a lot of these kids are coming from care and primarily from group home settings. We don't know exactly how many children are being injured or dying in these group homes, although governments report that those numbers do appear to be high. We know from the data that of the youth who died in care, 
in a two-year period, um, 62% were Indigenous. You know, there's, there, there isn't a lot of information out there. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. What about Yothmeath in particular? I know you guys looked at its recent history and past investigations and, and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So Yothmeath, as I mentioned earlier, it covers uh, a really big area in the Fraser Valley. It cares for children from 18 First Nations in that region. And we know from the work of people like Cindy Blackstock that First Nations child welfare authorities are underfunded. And so they have incredibly high caseloads. Each social worker has an incredibly high caseload. So we know the workloads on these social workers are very high. But we also know that the outcomes um, for kids in care in Yothmeath are, are not great. And we know that because the ministry in BC does periodic audits. And in the most recent one, they showed that in 89% of cases they looked at, Yothmeath had no comprehensive plan for the kids in their care. In 25% of the care homes they looked at, the required criminal records checks had not been done. Just 3% of kids had seen their social worker once per month, which is mandated. And in 10% of cases, kids hadn't seen a social worker at all in the entire three-year audit period. So these are, these are pretty damning statistics. Uh, red flags were there. Kipa Judy Wilson, who is with the Union of BC Indian Chiefs, told the Golden Mail that, you know, because those red flags were there, something should have been done. And she feels that had the government intervened, as it should have, uh, Trayvon may have been taken out of that home and Trayvon's life may have been saved. Yeah, I mean, this is going to sound like a rhetorical question from me, but it's not. I mean, where is the oversight? You're kind of detailing problems with this particular agency that go back long before Trayvon died. How were they still operating? Well, I mean, that's, that's the question, Jordan. Where is the oversight here? This is technically the ministry's responsibility, right? Ultimately, this is the, the, the ministry's responsibility. Trayvon was in the care of the ministry. His care had been delegated to the authority of Yothmeath, but ultimately the ministry is responsible for his care. They're the ones paying for it, and they're the ones who are supposed to be making sure that, that he is safe and he is being well cared for. And there were a series of failures here, and no one is um, willing to accept blame whether it's Yasmeese, whether it's race, whether it's uh, the ministry, no one has said exactly what happened and uh, what is going to be done and what changes are going to be made and how are they going to ensure that nothing like this ever happens again. Before we come back to Trayvon and maybe what could have happened differently, I want to ask a, a question that I think is pretty important in terms of making the distinction between what this kind of model of foster care should be, because I, I think it's important for First Nations, Indigenous youth to have, you know, that kind of care that connects them uh, to their own people. But 
when it's like this, it's clearly not working. So when you speak to advocates uh, for this system, you know, how do they try to balance um, the fact that it is so underfunded and clearly has bad outcomes with the fact that like, you know, as a model for what should be done, this is probably good. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess I should say that um, the people who are charged with caring for kids like Trayvon and Jamie, the, the care workers in these homes, a lot of these people are great folks. They're in it for the right reasons. They're not being paid well, but they care deeply for the kids in, in, in their care. And so I'd say that's, that's a majority of the people looking after these kids. But then you've got a significant number of people who are there because it's a job because they couldn't get any other work because it's a job that if you don't take it seriously, isn't a bad one. You know, if, if you're willing to let a kid hang out in this room all day, well, you can spend time on the computer, you can uh, lie around watching TV. So, I mean, that's, that's a big problem. You would think that uh, Jamie and Trayvon might've expected to have been cared for by First Nations or Indigenous uh, care workers who, you know, had a good understanding of where they were coming from, what their backgrounds were like, what, you know, their lives might've looked like before. I've talked with people who work in hospitals who are drawing up plans for kids like Trayvon and Jamie that include visits to psychiatrists, that Mm -hmm. include all kinds of things. And they are frustrated because they're coming up with these plans, but they don't feel that the people who are responsible for putting those plans in place, those are the care workers, are equipped or have the knowledge to actually put these plans in place. And so, you know, they feel like we've got a plan for this kid, but it's going to fall apart because the person who's supposed to be looking after this kid just doesn't have the knowledge, doesn't have the wherewithal to do the work. Is this ultimately... And again, coming back to Trayvon individually in a second, but is this ultimately uh, a resources problem? Does the system just not get enough money or or has the system broken somewhere along the way? I mean, that's a great question. I think it's, it's both a resources problem and a broken system problem. This isn't an isolated case. And a lot of the time we just don't hear about the Trayvons because their families, you know, for whatever reason, don't choose to publicize the case. But in this case... Trayvon's mom um, wanted his name to be known. She wanted his story to be known. She was willing to have reporters ask her difficult questions because she wanted his death to mean something. And that's the only reason that we know his story, uh, because she was willing to take that brave step. But, you know, there's a lot of Trayvons out there whose stories never get told. In Trayvon's case, one of the things that... um makes the case so tragic is that you kind of outline in your reporting uh, that it didn't have to be this way, that he didn't necessarily have to end up in the group home. What could have gone differently? Yeah, I mean, um, Trayvon had a big family in the Fraser Valley, and it didn't take long for me to reach an aunt of his who didn't realize what had happened and who said, you know, God, I've got a teenage daughter his age. We would have happily taken him in. So if he'd had a social worker who might have been willing to do the extra work of trying to track down a family member, he wouldn't have had to go into that care home. He had a fairly stable childhood with family members who were looking after him. Uh, We don't know exactly why the ministry took him from that home, but by all accounts, he was happy there. And there were people there who loved him. And, And that was what was really missing from this group home. It seemed to me anyway, a sense that he was loved, that he mattered, that 
um, there was people there who, you know, really wanted the best for him. And I think that can make such a difference in a kid's life. Um, just knowing that there's someone there who loves you and, and, and wants to look after you. Um, and I'm not sure that Trayvon was getting that. And, and just that's a, that's a, you know, a haunting fact that, that that'll always stick with me. So what happens next? You mentioned earlier that uh, the government has promised changes. Um, obviously, to your point, uh, the public might not have known about previous Trayvons. They they do know about this one now, and it's it's pretty clear it's not an isolated incident. Like, what what are the next steps? Well, I mean, from my perspective, I'm doing what I can to keep the story um, in the in the public public eye and and I keep phoning the ministry and asking them basically that question like what what is going to change um, what is going to take more and more people are are in touch and the AFM has spoken out about it the Union of BC Indian Chiefs has spoken out about it representative for children and youth in BC has spoken out about it so I had an email today from Preston Manning who was also horrified by the story so there's a lot of people who care and who are horrified by this story and, and hopefully that combined pressure forces the government here in BC to act. Hopefully Trayvon's death ends up spurring them into action. Nancy, thank you for walking us through this. I know it's a a really tough story, so uh, very much appreciate it. And uh, we'll do our best to keep in touch with you and, and follow up your work on this. Thanks. Nancy McDonald of The Globe and Mail. That was The Big Story. For more, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. Find us all the time on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN and write us an email whenever you like. Say whatever you like, especially if you have ideas for stories. You can find us at hello at TheBigStoryPodcast.ca. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now.